1 through 26 in John chapter 4. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon, the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Let me pray for us as God would apply his word to our lives. Father in heaven, I pray that you would break through the familiarity of this passage, that we would see the bold and radical claims that Jesus makes on his behalf, but more than that, we would see the powerful work you intend to do in our lives, transforming us as we acknowledge Jesus to be our Savior and Rescuer. Father, I know that as we gather, there are surely some who are here today without a saving faith, without a confident trust in you without the hope of eternal life that is offered through Jesus, our Savior. And so, Lord, I pray that today these words would bring hope, 
the words of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, would bring transforming power to the lives of those who listen. Lord, for those of us who follow after Jesus, let us see in his ministry the beauty, the power, the hope of the gospel. Lord, I ask that you would make us those who are willing to share good news. We come praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Mac Stiles is a member of an international church in Dubai. People from dozens of countries gather every Sunday. Actually, they worship on Fridays, but gather every week for worship. After a sermon one day, Pastor Daniel tells the church that they need to share their faith. They need to be evangelists in their community. Now, even though Mac has been a Christian for 30 years, he, it still strikes him as significant. And he, he says, I, I still feel like evangelism is, is constantly rolling the ball uphill in my life. It just doesn't seem easy. And so, so Mac decides, all right, if, if God's convicting me that I need to do something, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start right now. So he turns to his left, and, he, and there are two Filipino women sitting there. So he introduces himself in hopes that, that maybe he can, he can share the gospel, and he admits he was a little disappointed because he finds out they're already vibrant Christians. So he sees a, a couple from Sri Lanka and, and goes to introduce himself again with hopes that, that this will be his opportunity to, to share the gospel right here as the worship service has ended. But he finds out this couple are ministry leaders at their home church. Sometimes even intentional evangelistic fervor seems to go nowhere. Even when we finally get up the courage to share our faith, it can seem so disappointing. But did you notice in the ministry of Jesus how intentional he was? Look, look back at verse 4 as we're introduced to the fact that Jesus is leaving Judea in the south of the country to travel back to Galilee. And in verse 4, we're told, now he had to go through Samaria. Okay, well, geographically, I guess that's technically true. If you draw a line from Jerusalem back up to Galilee, then it traces you through Samaria, which is the shortest distance. But the thing is, many Jews of this era would have taken the long way around. They would have crossed the Jordan River and gone up the other side just to avoid Samaria. But John is telling us Jesus had to go through Samaria. Yes, it might have been the shortest, the most convenient route, but Jesus knew he had an appointment. He knew that while his disciples were in town looking for food, he would have the privilege of offering hope to a Samaritan Woman. And so he meets a woman there, a woman who, who as soon as we're introduced to her, we, we discover the problem of her race, the problem of her religion, the problem of her gender, the problem of her sin. Now, what's the adjective that you attach to the word Samaritan? You think of the good Samaritan because you've heard Jesus tell this story in Luke chapter 10. But, but, but what you need to remember is the only reason you and I attach the word good there is because that was the least likely person in that day and age in which you would have given that adjective to. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan. It's surprising. The religious people of Israel abandon the man who has been beaten alongside the road to Jericho. And surprisingly, it's a Samaritan? A hated Samaritan? Because the problem of this woman's race, 
she's not really Jewish. She's sort of half Jewish. The northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century had been destroyed and taken, the people had been taken away by the Assyrians. More people moved in and, and now it's this mixed breed. There's the problem of her religion, the religious syncretism in which they had taken the religions of the surrounding regions. We saw that even in the Old Testament, even during the times when their race was pure, the kings of Israel were turning away from God. These are the Samaritans. That was the capital city, Samaria. And the woman recognizes the problem. You see it in verse 9. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And just so that if you and I aren't clear on the relationships between Samaritans and Jews, John is explicit at the end of that verse. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. There's a, a hatred, an animosity, a, a bigotry associated in the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. But Jesus is willing to break through all of those apparent problems in asking this woman for help. In verse 7, he asks for water. It surprises her because he shouldn't be asking her. A good rabbi shouldn't be talking with a woman. A good Jew shouldn't take water from a Samaritan. He'll become unclean just by touching the pot that she uses to draw the water. But Jesus asks her for her help. And, and we're, we're told that Jesus is tired in verse 6. He's sitting down by the well. And then we read that it's about the sixth hour. So you have to look at your watch and calculate from the time the sun rose at 6 a.m., if we count six hours forward, so it's about noon. It's noon. It's the middle of the day. This is a bad time of day to come and draw water. It's the hottest point of the day. The sun is where at noon? If you don't have a watch, how do you know that it's noon? Because the sun is straight above you, bearing down on you. This is the worst time of day to come to draw water from the well. The other women have, have either likely already been early in the morning or they will come in the cool of the evening. You don't come now, burning through your energy. And so we're left to surmise, why would she be here by herself? Well, we're given an indication she is a woman who, who has had five husbands. A woman who in the ancient world, perhaps whether cast off by divorce, because divorce for men was easy. You burnt my toast, we're done. She's a woman who's been mistreated, likely. Cast aside, and now the man she lives with. Perhaps merely to find protection from society, the man she lives with won't even marry her. And yet Jesus asks her for help. And then more than that, Jesus, in response to, to her question, how could you even ask me for water? What does Jesus do in verse 10? He, he, he not only asks her for physical water, he offers her living, spiritual water. Look at verse 10. If you knew the gift of God, if you knew who it is that asks you for a drink, if you understood who I am, then you would ask me. For a gift from God. You would ask me for living 
water. Now Jesus is picking up on a theme that's easy enough for us to understand, but a theme that comes from the Old Testament. The prophets regularly use this language of living water to be a picture of God's love, mercy, and grace poured out on his people. Living water, clean, abundant, with, 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 a, with a source that, that could give them spiritual life. The, the prophet Jeremiah, back in Jeremiah chapter 2, uses this contrast between the living water that God gives and the water that we gather in cisterns, in a, in a well, water that becomes stagnant, but not merely in a cistern, a broken cistern. This is what, what Jeremiah says to the people. God confronts the people by saying they've committed two sins. The people have forsaken God, the spring of living water. God says, my people have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This language of living water as hope from God is is picked up throughout the prophets. If we go to to the end of the Old Testament, we find the prophet Zechariah in chapter 14, again, using this language, but looking forward to that day when God comes. When God himself will come to offer living water to his people. In Zechariah 14, verse 8, we read of the day the Lord is coming. Zechariah says, on that day, living water will flow. Living water will flow from Jerusalem to all of the people, to everyone who hears. And do you see what Jesus is saying to this woman? The prophets, the announcement of God's arrival, of God's good news, of salvation, of the gift of God, it's here right now. He is offering to her the hope of eternal life. He makes that clear in verse 14 that he's not merely when she says, okay, if I don't have to come down here in the middle of the day and draw water, that'd be great. If you've got some sort of indoor plumbing system, some aqueduct, you can bring water right to my house, I don't have to be here, then give it to me. And Jesus in verse 13 says, everyone who drinks that that water, ordinary water, will be thirsty again. But look at verse 14. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is offering salvation to her. To her. This woman, her own villagers, her neighbors don't even care about her. She's here by herself in the heat of the day. And the Messiah, the King of Israel, enters into her town and offers salvation to her. Because Jesus turns an ordinary conversation intentionally toward the spiritual hope that he's giving to her. He confronts her with her sin. It it, it seems initially rather harsh in verse 17, verses 16 and 17, when he says, all right, go bring your husband back. Because he knows exactly what's going to happen when she admits she has no husband. He knows the whole backstory. He has the spiritual insight into her brokenness. But it's an invitation because, because notice, and and I'll read this, we'll we'll see this again, but, but look at verse 29. After she goes back into the town to tell the people that she's met Jesus, look at what she says in verse 29. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. She's defined her whole life by her sin, by the way others have sinned against her. 
And so Jesus isn't being cruel in verses 17 and 18 when he brings this up. It's an invitation to her. But, but still, she's, she's not willing in verse 19 to, to jump into the personal conversation. She wants to, to take a step back into a, into a broader theological conversation. She wants to talk about the difference between Jews and Gentiles. We worship here on Mount Gerizim. You worship down in Jerusalem. We follow the Torah. You follow the, the prophets that came after that. We, she, she's, she's making it a, a bigger theological controversy. And, and perhaps, perhaps that's why you sort of hesitate to bring up conversations about spiritual things. Because you know that religion can be so divisive. I mean, you know that in polite company, there are certain things you don't talk about. And religion is surely near the top of the list. If, if Jews and Samaritans, whose religion is so close together, who share so much scripture together, who have the hope of a, of a coming Messiah, if they can't get along, then why would I want to jump into the fray? Why would I want to, why would I want to create controversy? Why would I want to stir the pot? And, 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 and maybe that's the reason today you would say that you're not a Christian. Because you just look at the world and you say religion is responsible for so much horror and evil, so much conflict. But notice what Jesus does in this controversy. He doesn't say, you're right, you're right, let's not talk about religion at all. He doesn't say religion is, is bad for the world. No, what, what does he do? He wants to point her to true religion. He wants to tell her how she can really worship. He wants to offer her, verse 22, salvation, which comes through the, the Old Testament, which comes through God's promises made to the Jews, but it's a salvation offered to her. Jesus points to his own authority. See, the, the problem isn't religion itself, because religions ask fundamental questions. They get at the things that, that are most, most core to who we are, the world that we live in. And so we have to answer those questions. To never talk about religious or spiritual questions means you never talk about anything important. Yes, you can tell me about the, the foul that ended the Final Four game last night. You can tell me about how many home runs the Phillies have hit this season. But we're not going to talk about things that are significant and core to who we are if we don't talk about religion. What does Jesus do? He points her back to the truth. He wants her to find real religion, real hope in him. Look at what he says in verse 26 when she says she's waiting for the Messiah to come. What does he say? I who speak to you am he, the Messiah, the King of Israel, the promised one is here. Jesus points back to his own authority, and that's what you and I need. We need answers that come to us with the authority of Jesus, with the compassion of Jesus. See, there's a humility in Jesus' actions in this passage. He shows us his vulnerability in just asking this woman a question. Will you give me a drink? Jesus, the King of Israel, the King who has come from heaven, sits dirty and tired next to a well. The King has come. He has made himself vulnerable. He offers salvation and grace to this woman. He declares himself to be the true King. And then, and then we see her response. Let me read verses 27 uh, uh, through, through, through 30. And then I'm going to jump down and read the, the rest of the response. We're going to kind of skip over the reaction of the disciples today. You actually got to hear more of that a few weeks ago. So, so I am recognizing we did just hear this passage. I'm going to continue reading in verse 27. Just then, Jesus' disciples returned and were surprised 
to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now let's jump down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Think of the climactic crescendo that we have just reached through the testimony of that woman. That woman goes with such an urgency, with with such a fervor, that the people who won't even walk to the well with her are now willing to go and hear of the one that she is speaking of. These people, in hearing Jesus teach, then come to make this bold declaration. This is the most profound theological statement we would have yet heard, spoken by a human in in the Gospel of John. And who says it? Not the disciples. The disciples are actually fools through this passage, stumbling through. They're still upset that he was talking with a woman. They've completely missed the salvation that is being offered to the Samaritans, the salvation that's being offered to the world. But the people of Samaria understand who Jesus really is, verse 42, the Savior of the world. See, the witness of the woman transforms this community. They come to hear the truth of who Jesus is, is what he has done. Jesus has rescued this woman by exposing what she had put her identity in, her relationships with others, even the the sin and the, the ways that she'd been sinned against. Jesus offered to her the hope of eternal life. The people of Samaria have come to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the King. He is the one who offers them eternal life, living water. He does it because we will see as the Gospel of John unfolds that Jesus is the one who who offers them living water, but at a great cost, his own life. He purchases salvation for these people by giving his life on the cross. And so as we think about the ways in which this passage should transform us, we first have to start with that fundamental question, do you believe in Jesus? Have you acknowledged him to be your Savior and rescuer? And I don't just mean, have you been to church a bunch lately? Showing up here isn't proof of your salvation. Have you acknowledged Jesus to be the Savior, the one who rescues you, the one who gives you the hope of eternal life? Have you received the gift that God is offering to you today? Have you put your trust in Jesus? And as you do so then, It means there are some lessons for us to learn about the way that we share this gift with others. 
as we offer this good news to others. First, be intentional about sharing your faith. John told us Jesus had to go through Samaria because it was a revival scheduled. And, 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 it, and it might seem like, how, how am I supposed to, I'm, 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 there's no way I can do what Jesus did to take an ordinary drink and to turn it into this message of, of thematic salvation, tying together all these Old Testament prophets to offer salvation to a whole town. I, I'm not ready to do that. Okay, then do what the woman did. Just go and tell someone. Announce, this is what Jesus has done for me. This is one small truth that I understand about who Jesus is. See, I don't want you to wait until you feel like, but, but, but she hadn't been through the evangelism training course offered by the disciples. Well, it's a good thing because they're such idiots here, they would have completely ruined her message. See, the best messengers are those who see the goodness of the gift that they hold. If you see the goodness of the gospel, then share it with others. And, and you, can, you can start small. I mean, think right now of someone you know that needs to hear this message and say, I'm going to be intentional and I'm going to schedule a time to meet with them. Schedule a lunch appointment. Invite them over to your house for a meal. Because it, it, it feels hard to do what Jesus did, to kind of walk through life and sitting at the well sort of create a gospel moment. All right, then write it down and put it on your schedule. Text someone today. I mean, this is, uh, right now, you could pull out your phone and, and you can text someone right now and say, I need to, we need to get together. When can we do it? I want you to think of someone by name. Not just the vague someones that you know. I want you to think of someone specific. And, and if you feel like doing what Jesus did is, is too big, then start small. Do what the woman did. Just, just say something. If, if, you, if you discover a mutual connection, like a friendship with with someone and as you're getting to know them and you realize, oh, wait, yeah, we, 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 we know the same person. Don't just say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know Jim. Say, I know Jim. We serve together at church. Now, you might think, okay, well, I, that wasn't, I could maybe do that. Or, you know, if somebody says, well, what are your plans for the weekend? I mean, don't just start by listing off the park and the yard work and the museums and the movies that you're going to, like, say, well, a big part of what I do on the weekend is, is I'm, I'm excited about worship in my church. Just start there. Just mention it. Mention something religious. Share the hope, the offer of living water. And then pray that God would open doors for you. Because Jesus is still at work. He is, this passage tells us, the Savior of the world. God is at work in transforming people's lives, and, and maybe as you pray, as you open the door just a little bit, God's going to throw the door open for you to share the gospel. Now, Mac, after the worship service in his international church, when his pastor said, go and share the good news of Jesus, after he's tried twice and found that the people he's introduced himself to, that well, they're already already believers, he decides, well, I'll just help clean up chairs. And so he, he says that as he, as he walks over to the stack of chairs, he almost runs over this young man standing there. Can you help me? The young man asks. Yeah. Uh, and then he knew. He says, I, I just knew 
this was the man God was sending me to. My name's Mac. How can I help? My name is Basanta. And he takes Mac's hand and holds on to it. I'm glad to meet you, Basanta. He says the name slowly to make sure he's getting it right. Basanta's still holding his hand. I'm from Nepal, he says. Oh. Now, Max is trying to do the geography in his head, trying to figure out, okay, well, what kind of religious, he's, so it wouldn't have been a Christian country. He's, I guess he's probably singing to himself. I guess, I guess maybe he's, he's probably he's Hindu. Now almost everyone has left the room, and so Mac pulls two chairs off the stack. Without any other word of introduction, Basanta says, can you tell me how to become a Christian? Yes, I can. Now Mac replies as if he does this all the time, as if this is the most obvious question that he could be asked, and he, and he begins to, to walk Basanta through the gospel, connecting it to the themes of the worship service. He, he even sketches out some of the key points because he knows that, that while Basanta's English is good, it's not his first language. He starts with the sin of Adam because the gospel is amazingly universal, exposes all of our sin, and he walks through pointing him to the hope of Jesus Christ. Max says, we took as much time as we needed to exhaust all his questions, and then I asked him if he's ready to turn his life over to Christ. Yes, I am ready. But I have to tell you a story before I do. Now, Basanta's been holding a Bible the whole time. He says, you see this Bible? My brother works in Saudi Arabia. Someone gave him this Bible, and he became a Christian. Now, Mac knows there aren't a lot of Bibles. They're not easy to get in Saudi Arabia. And my brother sent this Bible to my other brother who serves in Iraq. He's a driver. It's a dangerous job. And he became a Christian. And he sent the Bible to my mom and dad who live in India. And they became Christians and now have a church meeting in their own house. Mac realizes now that, that something, ha like God is, he's, he's just stepped into the midst of a family revival taking place. Basanta hands the Bible to Mac. And he says, and I am the last brother. My parents sent me the Bible. They told me I must become a Christian. So I came to church today. Mac had the privilege of praying with Basanta in that empty room. He had the joy of, of walking him through discipleship. He said after the first time meeting together after this, Basanta realized God wants me to give up my idolatry, and he destroyed all of his idols part of his religious upbringing from, from childhood. He, 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 Basanta continued to come to, to worship, and on the day of his baptism, he stood and he told the whole story, telling the story of how the gospel had come to his brother, and then his other brother, his parents, and then to him. And then he says, and God used Mac to bring me to Jesus. Mac says, he, he, he tells the story as if I were an integral part of it. 
that God would use me to share the gospel. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus offers the gift of eternal life, living water to us. Jesus gave himself for us. Will you believe? And will you share this good news? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the power of your word, the transforming work of the gospel, which brings us to salvation through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, we rejoice in the good news that's been given to us, that Jesus offers us the hope of eternal life. So, Father, we come now in the name of Jesus, asking you to work in us, even as we see the gospel displayed at this table. Lord, we come in Jesus' name. Amen.